I need to cover some ground in a short time, but I'd like to ask you to turn with me to Psalm 103. The song they were just singing reminded me of one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from ruin, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Drop down to verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame he remembers that we are dust. Verse 17, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. Someone was just telling me earlier about welcoming a great-grandchild into the world. What a marvelous legacy to see children bearing children and hopefully raising up those children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Let's go back to the book of Jude. I'll try to, I think I lingered a bit in Matthew 23, but uh, it's a passage that I think could be spoken directly to the United States of America today. I grieve for this country and I grieve for where we're going. And I know that there's a reckoning coming and I can only pray that when that reckoning comes, we will stand firm and play our part. The tears of those who have bartered this country, the grief and the howls that are going to come of those when they finally realize we traded away the most blessed, the most bountiful, a nation that could basically feed the world, now becoming impoverished, and unable to even care for itself. And all because of the destructive decisions of people, as we read in Jude, who speak of high things that they don't even comprehend. What a terrible thing. Join me in prayer as we open up again. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we lift up to you the nation of Israel. We pray, Father, for the people there who are hurting, people who are grieving. Uh, again, people on both sides who are going to be suffering as a result of this madness. But we also pray for our own nation. We know that you're long-suffering and patient. We know that if this nation would turn to you again, if we would humble ourselves before the throne of your grace, you would be able to restore rich blessing to our land. Father, even in wrath, Remember mercy, even in judgment, pour out your grace on those who are willing to receive and let souls and individuals 
if we are not willing as a nation at least, humble ourselves and come before you to receive your blessing. Open your word to us now by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Enlighten us with your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to go from verse 11 through verse 16. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Once again, a triplet. Verse 12, he begins figures of speech to illustrate the evil of the time. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Literally, it says shepherding only themselves. They pretend to be shepherds of God's flock. The only one they're interested in shepherding is themselves. They are clouds without water carried about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. What a horrible and what an awful denunciation. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You think he's trying to make a point? I think ungodly is the point he wants us to get. Ungodly essentially means without God, godless. Verse 16, these are grumblers complainers, walking according to their own lust. They mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Let's just quickly run through and pick out some of the highlights of this section. First of all, the set of three that we find in verse 11. Uh, we already have seen historical examples of large groups. We've seen, for example, the failure of the Exodus generation, We've seen the angels who left their estate, and we've seen Sodom and Gomorrah. So these are large groups that rebelled. Now we have individuals. And why go to individuals? Because large groups are always led by individuals. You probably have heard of the 10-80-10 rule. Uh, in any given crisis, there are 10% of the people who know what to do, 80% of the people who are waiting on someone to tell them what to do, and another 10% of the people who aren't going to do the right thing even if they're told. I think that's more or less the way the 10-80-10 rule goes. You always have to have someone who is leading the way, and leaders are either leading right or they're leading wrong. There's no middle ground. So here we have three individual leaders, the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. And once again, this is highlighting typical motivations and actions of false teachers. The way of Cain, of course, is the way of religion. Uh, Cain did not want to follow the divine direction of animal sacrifice, blood sacrifice, to human religion that always seems ghastly. It always seems horrible. Why would God require a blood sacrifice? 
because the life is in the blood. And if you're going to make a payment for life, you have to pay with life. Only the life, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ could fulfill the Old Testament picture of the sacrificial lamb. But Cain brought his fruit basket, the fruit of his own hands, and therefore it represents the way of nothing more deadly. We're seeing the evidence of it right now over in the Middle East. There is nothing more deadly than human religion. Human religion hates the gospel. Human religion hates Jesus Christ. Human religion hates the message of the cross because it strips away from us the ability to claim any right uh, of having accomplished our own salvation. If we can just give the slightest little bit, if we can have a message of believe in Jesus plus this, believe in Jesus and add baptism, add joining the church, Add whatever you want to add. If we can just add something, give us the smallest shred of something to claim as our own and we'll be happy. When you present the clear gospel of Jesus Christ and make it clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is an immediate reaction of hatred because it leaves us no shred of claim or credit for our salvation. So this is the way of Cain, the way of religion and its murderous attitude to the way of faith. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam. And you have uh, all of the references in your notes. You can go back and study the air of Balaam in Numbers 22, 21 to 31. You can see 2 Peter 2, 15 and 16. Balaam was the first hireling that we see in Scripture. He sold his ministry for profit. He was willing to change his message for pay. Uh, he also taught others how to sin. Numbers 31, verses 8 and 16. Look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14. Uh, Balaam was the one who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block in the path of Israel to teach them to commit fornication and to get engaged in idol worship and idol sacrifice. And uh, once again, I point out that wherever you have idols and idol worship, you will always have perversion, degeneracy, and all forms of corruption, particularly in the sexual area. God created man and woman and designed sex to be something that is sacred. And it's because of the fact that God designed it to be sacred that it's always linked. Everywhere that you have idolatry, you will always have perversion in the sexual area because it is a physical expression of a spiritual disease. We don't like to hear that, and it's unpopular today. Who knows, I may get arrested for saying it, but it's simply the truth. Amen. The error of Balaam. And then we have the rebellion of Korah. If you go back to number 16, you'll remember that Korah and his cohorts didn't like the fact that Moses and Aaron exercised authority over them. 
We see this problem over and over again in local churches where people will come in and they're glad to find a church. They're so happy to finally be in a good church. And, you know, they go along for a while and then all of a sudden, well, we don't like the way this is. Well, we don't like the way. Well, why do they have to tell us to do this? We ought to have a voice. We as the congregation, we ought to lead the leaders and on and on and on. Pretty soon you have a church in shambles. And I'm sure I'm not the only one here in this congregation that has seen that happen over and over and over again. And of course, you'll remember that when Korah and his cohorts rebelled, God brought judgment on them. The earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them alive down into the pit. It doesn't uh, really work very well to rebel against divinely established authority. It says then that they... Uh, they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots. He now goes into five illustrations from nature, five metaphors, if you will, from nature of what these false teachers are like. He says they are spots in your love feet, but the word spots literally means hidden rocks. It was actually used of a... Uh, shoal along the shore, uh, a hidden reef along a shore that would shipwreck ships. James talks about the same thing. But when he relates it to the love feast, it's like you're sitting at the Lord's table and in the early church, they actually celebrated what we would call a potluck. They would share a meal together, and then they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it's like you're biting down. Have you ever bitten down on something like what always gets me is an olive. You get a jar of pitted olives, and I happen to love olives. I go through them like crazy. And, uh, you know, you've been eating five or six of these wonderful olives, and they're especially better if they have garlic and jalapeno in them. That's just about as good as it gets. And then you get one with the seeds still in it. You know the feeling. Well, here you are celebrating the Lord's table. You're having a wonderful potluck with the church, and all of a sudden you have a rock in your bread. It would not make you very happy. What's the point? The point of the rock in the love feast is that at the time when there should be the most fellowship and the most communion, there is disharmony and disunion. He says... <clears throat> They are, uh, they feast with you without fear, serving themselves. As I said, this literally says they shepherd themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds. Um, we've all had dry seasons. Uh, I remember times growing up in Kansas, and you wait for the rains, and the rains never come, and then finally you start seeing some clouds on the horizon, and then finally there's some thunderheads building, and you watch these thunderheads build up, and you're just sure the ground is dry and parched, the crops are all dying, and you're begging and praying for rain, and these thunder clouds build up, and then they just dissipate and there's no rain. We, that's normal in Arizona, but they didn't name it Arizona for no reason. It is the arid zone, and so you just get used to it. That's, that's just daily life in Arizona. Clouds without water, what is it? Promise without fulfillment. They have a promise that they cannot fulfill. Late autumn trees, why late autumn? Because autumn is the time of harvest. Autumn is the time when the trees should be covered with fruit. But here it is, late autumn, 
The harvest is past. They have no fruit. Twice dead, pulled up by the roots. What do you do with a tree that fails to produce? You pull it up. Why? It's already dead. You might as well pull it up, make it twice dead. Twice dead may actually have a connotation to the second death mentioned at the end of the book of Revelation. Verse 13, we have raging waves of the sea. Uh, with all of their boasting and all of their words, they are foaming up their own shame. All they do is like a sea that is uh, stirred up by the storm and it casts all of the flotsam and jetsam of the bottom of the sea up on the shore and they're casting out and foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars, you know, people are always excited when another comet comes around. Uh, I don't know why, but they say the next comet is the size of 300 capybaras or, you know, why they started doing this, I'll never know. But it's like this asteroid that's coming toward the earth is the size of 48 pigs. You know, if it hits us, it'll destroy us. Well, in the ancient world, when they saw a falling star, this is what they thought of. They called a falling star a wandering star. It flashed bright for a moment, and then you see it just trail out into the blackness. What Jude is saying is that these false teachers come on the scene, and they look bright, and they look brilliant, and they're just simply going to fade into the blackness of the darkness forever. The horrible and awful judgment of those who are without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, and yet present themselves as teachers of God's Word. Well, he's given us a lot of gloom and a lot of awful information, a lot of evil. He brings us in verse 14 to Enoch. Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Very interesting. It's significant, apparently, that he is the seventh from Adam, seven being a number of completion, of course. And you know the story. If you go back in Genesis chapter 5, reading verses 18 to 24, Enoch walked with God, and Enoch was not. He was the first one to experience the rapture. Uh, Enoch is taken into the presence of the Lord. But Enoch left a prophecy, and here Jude is actually quoting from the book of First Enoch. Uh, Enoch apparently was the first prophet. I find this absolutely fascinating. We could spend a lot of time on it, uh, but I'm not going to go overboard. Notice that he prophesied about these, about these men. Remember that Jude said in verse 4, they were long ago marked out for this condemnation. How long ago? Go back to the beginning of human history. Go back to Enoch. He prophesied concerning them, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. And this is a reference to the second advent of Jesus Christ, which is pictured just as Enoch said it would be in Revelation 19. Turn there with me, and we'll see Enoch's prophecy fulfilled. Revelation 19. Beginning in verse 11. John says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. You know what that name is? 
No one knows but himself. It's amazing, by the way, the number of messages that are preached on things the Scripture says we can't know. Remember when Paul went into the third heaven and heard words that it is not proper for a man to utter? I've heard messages preached on what Paul heard in the third heaven. And then in the book of Revelation, we have John when he heard the uh, seven thunders utter their voices. And he said, I started to write and I was commanded not to write. And so he didn't write. And then again, I've heard pastors preaching on the things that John was not allowed to write. No one knows this name except himself. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. You know, even in eternity, the sacrifice of Christ is going to be first and foremost when we see him. We are always going to remember the price that he paid. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. You have before you a book. And that book is the written Word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the living Word of God. When you hold this book, you hold the essence of who He is. Honor your Bible. Treat your Bible with reverence. I don't mean don't write in it. If someone told me don't write in it, you want to see Jude in my Bible? Some people say, how can you even read it? The answer is sometimes I can't. I opened my Bible one time in Nagaland. I was at a theological college and one of the teachers there looked at my Bible and said, it looks like a workbook. I said, it's my workbook. All of this means nothing to most people, but I have my own way of marking. But honor your Bible. Treat it with respect. Treat it when you hold it as if you were holding the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will make it a little bit more real to you. Listen to it as you read it. Listen to it as it's taught, as if He is talking to you. Don't think of the faults and the flaws of some poor stumbling tongue like myself trying to speak to you a perfect message. This is the perfect Word of God. Overlook the medium and listen to the message and let the Lord Jesus Christ speak to you. And I just... Lost my place now in Revelation 19. All right, here we go. Verse 14, the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who's that? That's you and I. At the second advent, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints and thousands upon thousands. We're going to be there. You say, I can't ride a horse. Don't worry, we have time to prepare. There will be riding lessons before we come. I may be allowed to help teach some of them. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What a marvelous moment. That's going to be. But I want you to notice something. The seventh from Adam through Seth is the first prophet. And I want you to notice that the first prophet agrees with the last prophet. 
The first prophet, do you not find this interesting? The first prophecy we have in the Bible from a prophet. We have an earlier prophecy, which is the prophecy in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. But this is the first prophecy that we have recorded from the first prophet who is named in Scripture. Enoch the seventh from Adam, agreeing with, not only with John in Revelation 19, agreeing with the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, but especially agreeing with the last prophet. Do you know who the first false prophet is? The first, false, the, the, the first true prophet is Enoch the seventh from Adam, through Seth. We have the first false prophet. His name is Lamech. He is the seventh from Adam through Cain. You'll remember him. The first thing he did, have I told you this? Have I mentioned this today? That when we get spiritually off, it always is going to somehow generate perversion in the sexual realm. The first polygamist. He becomes a polygamist. He decides that God's order, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two, the two, not the three, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, the two, the man and the woman shall become one flesh. Right? So the first thing he does, he perverts the order. Well, let's just go back and see what he does. Turn with me. Back to the beginning. Back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Why did he go out? He's cast out because he's a murderer. And he dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. This is a different Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Uh, this lineage, by the way, were the builders and the artists and the developers. Nothing wrong with that in itself. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael got Methushael, and Methushael, you wonder how, you know, son, grandson, and great-grandson, you'd get them all confused. Methushael begot Lamech, verse 19, then Lamech took for himself two wives. First violation, the name of one was Ada, the name of the second was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. As for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsmanship in bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Verse 23 Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. In other words, it's my word that matters, not God's word. I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy sevenfold. Did God say any of that? From the taking of the two wives to manslaughter at the very least, if not murder, uh, 
uh, it's very difficult to tell when he says that he killed a man for wounding him what the actual source of the problem was because sometimes that can be nothing more than the guy hurt my feelings. So I killed him, right? And then to assume that he has the right <clears throat> to claim for himself greater protection than that of Cain. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech 70 and sevenfold. Well, you can see seven down from Adam, first true prophet, seven down from Adam through Cain, first false prophet. Isn't it interesting how Satan always counterfeits the plan of God? He will always counter everything that God does in human history. So coming back now to the book of Jude. He says in verse 16, these, and you'll notice that these gets a lot of attention. It starts in verse 8, these dreamers. It moves to verse 10, these speak evil. Goes to verse 12, these are spots. And then, of course, Enoch's prophecy of the ungodly relates to these, referring to false teachers. These are grumblers, perpetual negativity. It's why I say as we deal with the Word of God, we have to deal with right and wrong. We have to deal with recognizing evil. We have to deal with... Uh, judgments that God pours out on the human race. There are things that we can't avoid, but don't let it turn your attitude to the world, your attitude to your ministry, to your life, to your witness, to the negative. Uh, I know some people that cannot witness without their witness being negative. Don't let negativity dominate your life. Even in the world that we live today, our, our country is in a mess. Don't let negativity dominate your thinking. The world is full of beauty. This nation is full of marvelous people. There are wonderful people in this country. There are acts of heroism, acts of submission and humility, acts of service that are done every single day. Look for those things, find those things and identify them and uplift and encourage those who do them. These are grumblers and complainers. There's plenty to complain about. Don't let it dominate your life. Here's the real problem, walking according to their own lust. What motivates you when you wake up in the morning? What are the first thoughts in your mind? What are the last things that go through your head before you drift off to sleep? When you pray, and I hope you pray, and I hope you pray often, I hope you're praying more and more every day. I hope your prayers are more for others than for yourself. I hope instead of give me, it's thank you. I hope instead of I want for myself, it's I wish. For someone else, I desire for them and not myself. Pray for others. Let that dominate your life. They walk according to their own lust because for them they are the beginning, the middle, and the end of all existence. Everything is about them. I'm sure you've known people like this. 
Everything is about them. In reality, everything in our life should be for someone else. The more selfless we are, the more sacrificial we are, the more giving we are, the more Christ-like we are. If God's word is making any difference in my life, it's going to be expressed in my prayers, it's going to be expressed in my giving, it's going to be in my submission and surrender, it's going to be, and this is tough for us guys, I know, it's going to be in a willingness to be possibly made to be ashamed, uh, possibly insulted. You know, the, the old idea, somebody insults me, I roll my sleeve up and punch him in the face. You know, we admire that, oftentimes wrongly so. We need to be willing to take an insult. We need to be willing to shrug things off. We need to be willing, as Jesus said, to turn the other cheek. Now, when you only have two cheeks, you don't have to keep turning. I believe it was Hudson Taylor when he was a young man, and someone mocking his faith came up and said, hey, the Bible says turn the other cheek. Do you believe that? And he said, yes, I do. And the guy hauled off and hit him on one side of his face, and he turned the other cheek. And the bully hauled off and hit him on the other side of the face. And he said, now that I've fulfilled scripture, I will deal with this problem. And he beat the tar out of the kid. <laughs> so you only have two cheeks. So it doesn't mean that you have to become someone's doormat. Don't live for self. This is the point. I promise you, the more you live for others, the more joy you will have. The more we're willing to sacrifice for someone else, the more we're willing to do without for someone else, the more we're willing. It doesn't mean, you know, some people get the idea that this means that I have to give everything I have away, spend everything that I have on someone else. I have to have nothing and give. No, it doesn't mean that at all. We have a lot of rich people in the Bible. Thank God for them. Abraham was rich. Job was the richest man of the East. The apostle Paul in prison is oftentimes supported and cared for by those who are wealthy. It's important to keep things in perspective. But let's consider the needs of those around us. Let's give a share of the marvelous things that God has done for us with someone else. What motivates them? Number one, their negativity. Number two, their own gratification. And number three, speaking flattering words for gain. Notice mental attitude, sins, sins of the body, and sins of the tongue. They speak or mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Flattery will get you everywhere, some people will say. It's a gullible person who is taken in just by flattery because the person who flatters you today will destroy you tomorrow. Don't be a sucker for flattery. Don't use flattery and don't live for self. We are up to verse 17 and verse 17 starts, how do we contend for the faith? We've waited all this time from last night. Jude gives us 
the exhortation, contend for the faith. We have looked at passages that help us to understand it, but it's actually in verse 17. He finally gets to the part where he starts telling us, how do we do it? We're going to look at it tomorrow morning, and then we're going to end the day with the last two verses, which is one of the most beautiful beatitudes of many beatitudes in the Bible, three in particular that we have in our New Testament. We'll look at those tomorrow. We'll see how marvelous it is to be a servant of God. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you rest well. I hope the day's been a blessing to you. I hope that beyond anything that I may have said, God the Holy Spirit has at some point put his finger on a sensitive part of your soul and said, this is for you. This message is my message to you. If you can walk away with that, if it's just one thing, remember what was the old show with Curly? Um, I can't. <laughs> City Slickers, got it. Yeah, I couldn't hear because, you know, I'm, I hate to tell you this. I know you're not going to believe this, but I'm getting old. I know you don't believe that. Um, two things particularly are fading. My eyesight and my hearing. I thank God, yeah. What'd you say? I thank God that I still have strong legs, a strong back, and strong arms. But uh, my hearing is rapidly depleting. I only hope that I can hear the trumpet call when the Lord descends from heaven with a shout. I'm sure he's going to shout loud enough that I'll hear it, but uh, do forgive me sometimes because I do struggle as we all do. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for these wonderful people. I pray that each one of us can walk away feeling that we have been blessed by something that you've had to say to us today. Help us to focus on the positive things that you have given us, not the negative things that we may have thought. Uh, sometimes we can be a little bit uh, prickly, but Lord, we know that you desire only to bless us. We thank you for your blessing. We pray that you will go with us now this evening as we reflect on the things that we have shared together, the feast that we have had at the banquet table of your grace. I pray that what we have heard will become a living reality in our life, not to our credit, but to the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.